0: I'm going to start us off right away in God's Word, Acts chapter 17, if you would please turn there. And as you're turning there, let's please welcome those online who are joining us on our online campus. We are happy you are here too, online world. Hope that the Holy Spirit touches your heart as well. So Acts chapter 17 is where I will be spending the most time tonight. This is our conclusion to Unleash the Lion. This has been a five-part series in fully unleashing God in our lives in 2018. That is, uh, so to speak, to unleash God, take him off the leash, if you will, right? See a a wider perspective of God. Have, have Have a perspective of God that's outside the box. We don't have this narrow view of God anymore. We maybe for, for the first time ever begin to see God doing things in our lives and in our city and community that we've never seen him do before because our perception of God is getting bigger. We're trusting God more. We're giving God more. We're allowing God to speak to our lives more intentionally. And, and, and we, we are starting to have this wide view of God. And it's my honor and privilege to wrap this thing up and we're talking about what it means for a Christian to live on mission. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Now, as I was prepping this lesson, it dawned on me, I'm like, we talk a lot about what it means to live on mission here. A lot. And I'm like, I wonder, and my fear was this would fall on inoculated ears. But then I was reminded there is a reason why we talk about living on missions so frequently here because we genuinely believe, we genuinely believe that the essence of our faith is actually not a list of do's and don'ts. And that the core of our faith is not moral management. We believe that morally, uh, morality rather, we believe that morality is a product of walking with Jesus daily, not a prerequisite to walking with Jesus daily. But if we reduced our faith to a list of do's and don'ts, we're participating in religion. And that's something that Jesus was irritated about frequently throughout the gospels. Instead, we believe here that the essence of our faith is this robust, thrilling, rich relationship with the creator of the universe, Jesus. And we have all been touched to some degree by his love. Now, when we have something awesome happen in our lives, we typically want to tell people. Uh, When we hear that, uh, for example, when my wife and I found out that we were pregnant last year, we we were thrilled and we wanted to go tell our family. We wanted to tell our family, we wanted to tell our friends. It was the best news ever. Church, we possess the shame-shattering guilt-destroying, religion-cracking message of the gospel. And the world is hungry for that message. And you and I have the message. And so the essence of our faith is to share what we know with a world that doesn't know it. And if we begin to perceive that part of our faith, a very big part of our faith is sharing that faith, and saying, yeah, I wanna see you in eternity, and I wanna see you in eternity, and you annoy me, but I wanna see you in eternity too, right? Instead of reducing our faith to a list of do's and don'ts. So I am gonna be talking about what it means, what it looks like, what it could look like for you and for me to live intentionally on mission each and every day. And I would actually would rather spend the entire night talking about the why than the how, because I love talking about the love of Jesus. I really do. But tonight really is how, how we go about that. But I will briefly mention why so that we're set up for how really well. For example, 1 John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. 2 Corinthians five fourteen says, for Christ's love compels us. We know that somehow, some way, God's love made it in here and it changed us from the inside out. And we're like, yeah, this is good stuff. My life's totally different. Everyone's gotta know about this. This, this. this changes everything. That's the why. Because we want other people to experience the transforming love of Jesus. But I have a question for you tonight. I know that many of you in here have been touched by the love of Jesus, And you want to share the love of Jesus to a hurting and lost world. And you've got the passion and the energy, but you may be in this place in life where you are lacking some of the necessary skills or tools, rather, to get the job done. I'm gonna offer this question before we get to the theme of this message. Are you currently confident to fulfill this mission. That is the mission, the one singular mission God gave the church, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that Jesus said and did and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. Are you, and you don't have to answer out loud because that would just be weird, but are you currently confident to fulfill that mission? And the way that you can kind of, you know, have a litmus test for this is Am I participating in my faith like a list? Listianity, I went to church, I didn't kill anyone, you know, I didn't steal anything, and I go down the list. If currently you are in listianity, you are missing the essence of our faith. You're missing it. And sometimes I think that the enemy is content for us to participate in listianity because it's devoid of urgency and mission. It's religion management. We're we're, we're very content to go through the motions and play church like we played house when we were kids. I mean, I didn't play house, but I mean, maybe you did, (laughs) come on, right? So are you confident to fulfill this mission? And there have been pockets in my life, even recently where I am like, no, I am not confident to fulfill this mission. And it's not due to a lack of passion. It's also not due to a lack of loving Jesus. Sometimes I don't know what I'm doing, and it's hard. It's hard to be in this place where I'm like, I really want to reach that person, but I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to start. When my, uh, when my wife and I got married, one of the very first things we started doing uh, was rock climbing together. When I was about 20, I really, really got into rock climbing. Uh, I had this like. This like fixation on heights. I don't know why. I have fixation on the heights. As a matter of fact, this is actually a picture of me uh, in New Zealand. Um, I'm summiting what is known there as Mount Maitland. No, it is not Eric Maitland's mountain. It is Mount Maitland in New Zealand. And I want to point out a couple of things. Uh, in this picture, you'll see that I've got a harness on. I've got boots with crampons and eye sacks and a rope. Uh, and then underneath that orange jacket, I've got an avalanche transceiver. Now, in the event that I would get get caught in an avalanche, I would uh, then be able to be located by my climbing partners. The amount of necessary tools that I'm currently utilizing in this photo was critical to me reaching the summit of Mount Maitland. It was critical. Without those tools in place, I would have never met that goal. Ever. I think sometimes... We are unwilling to learn the tools, the trade of evangelism, the craft of reaching the lost, because it's hard. Because it's hard. It's hard to do anything except for listianity. Listianity is easy. It's easy to check off the box. It's much, much more difficult to intentionally Every single day, wake up and decide, God, I trust you with whomever you're placing in my life, and I'm going to be faithful to communicating somehow that you love them too. And with these tools, I'm confident, I'm confident that we can make way more impact in this city, way, way more impact. Matthew 24 and 35 says this, seems... Um, seems to suggest this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's word will never pass away. And so tonight, the theme of this lesson is simply this, a commitment to the timeless message of the gospel, but adopting the timely methods that are necessary to reach a lost world a commitment to the timeless message of the gospel. That is, God's word doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. But willing, be willing to adopt the timely methods that are necessary to reach a lost and changing world. All we're talking about is adaptive methodology. We're talking about being able to adapt with varying contexts. We're talking about being able to share the love of Jesus with this person over here And it might look radically different than sharing the love of Jesus with this person over there. Are we confident to fulfill that mission? That is a hard, hard task. So my hope tonight is to offer you up a set of tools. When I say adaptive methods or methods and I say tools, they're synonymous for this lesson, for this purpose. But I'm gonna be in Acts chapter 17. And we see Paul, we see Paul master this trade. We see Paul pick up a set of tools. He has a toolbox at his disposal that he uses consistently as he travels from city to city, accomplishing the impact of the gospel. Because he's intentional, he's bold, he's available. It's remarkable. And I want to remind you that Paul was a tent maker. He assembled ancient shelters, can anyone even say that they do that in here? Like, that would be awesome if there was someone here that designed tents and made tents. My point in telling you that before I read the scripture is that many of you in here have already counted yourselves out of this message. I, I know that they're in here. I know there's probably several of you that are like, Luke, you know, I've heard this message a thousand times. Count me out, man. You don't know my background. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the things that I've said. You don't know the legal trouble that I've gotten in. You don't know the the, the dark parts of my heart that the light has yet to expose. Look, Paul murdered Christians. Paul murdered Christians and God radically transformed his life and used this man to accomplish what no man in history before him had accomplished, apart from Christ, of course. So do not count yourself out. Because if anything, if Paul can do it, so can we. Actually, I want you to say that. Say that out loud. If Paul can do it, so can we. One, two, three. If Paul can do it, so can we. Absolutely. This is Acts chapter 17, verse one. I'm going to burn through this like a race car. So I want you just to keep up. I'm going to read, make commentary, and do that about three or four times. Here we go. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphiopolis, And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Quote, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Verse 5, But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post-bond and eventually let them go. Church, we got to know what we're getting ourselves into when we hold God's word to be the highest written authority because we will face persecution of various kinds. Persecution is only a sign of spiritual success, not the other way around. I'll tell you what, <laughs> the bad characters, which I think is hysterical, the bad characters that were, that were causing all the trouble and throwing shade and you know just being goons, yeah, the enemy's like, oh, I'm going to disrupt this. But the church doesn't back down under persecution. The church grows under persecution, which, was, which is a remarkable thing to think about. Church, don't, don't miss this. Each time the kingdom grows, the enemy shrinks. Can I get an amen for that? Right? Each time the kingdom is advanced, the enemy shrinks. And he gets all scared. And so what does he do? He rounds up some bad characters. He tries to get people all frustrated and disrupted. But their commitment to fulfilling their mission sustained them. This was in Thessalonica. Let's move now to Berea. Okay, we're going to cover three contexts here. Thessalonica, check. Berea, verse 10, here we go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if Paul, what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with the instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Dude, those Jews in Thessalonica are super obnoxious, right? They're like really, really, really annoying. They basically saw another opportunity to disrupt Paul and his mission in Berea. Don't you love it how the Jews in Berea were like, we're actually much more level-headed than those in Thessalonica, so bring it. We're ready to, we're ready to hear it. We're eager, actually, to examine your word and, and see if what you say is true. I think it's amazing that in both contexts, Paul actually has relatively good success despite the persecution, right? And we get to see it, and we get to see how he worked together with his team to accomplish it. So we've now seen Thessalonica, we've seen Berea, and this last context, Athens, is really gonna widen our perspective here. Verse 16, this is Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked. He seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It's almost like an ancient TED talk or something. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in a meeting at the Arapagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your obje- objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship." And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Let me pause there before verse 24. Man, Paul just calls these guys out. He, he walks into what is the... Um, the most prominent progressive think tank of the time. The Arapagus was kind of like the highest Greek academic university, if you will, in Athens. So he's in front of all of these thinkers and progressive thinkers and what, and, there are, and there's lots of aisles everywhere. And there's this one aisle that says, to an unknown God. And he's like, dude, you don't even know who you're worshiping. Are you kidding me? Like, seriously, you guys claim to be thinkers, but you, what's this guy's name? Apparently you don't know because you had to ascribe it to an unknown God. He calls these guys out a little bit. And then he enters into what I think is probably the best sermon apart from Christ's sermons in the New Testament. Verse 24, Paul boldly says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out for their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are, we are his offspring. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, making reference to Jesus. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we wanna hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Wow. Paul just like stood up in front of Harvard of our time, right? And was like, listen, y'all are way off base. Y'all don't even know what you're talking about. The God of the Bible is very different than the idols that you are worshiping right now. We find Paul and the disciples in three different contexts. We see them in Thessalonica, we see them in Berea, and then we see them in Athens, What I would like to do is offer three categories of people that tune in to the airwaves of the gospel. Because I think that we here have this beautiful mission that Paul and the disciples engage in, and each context is different. That's not unlike our lives today. Our contexts vary. Our family, our work, uh, you know, Our neighborhoods, our streets, our schools, we're talking, not everybody is going to hear and tune in to the airwaves of the gospel the same way. So I'm going to offer up three three categories. These are the three categories. The gospel falls on jealous ears, eager ears, and curious ears. The gospel falls on jealous ears, eager ears, and curious ears. In Thessalonica, it was jealous ears. Thessalonica was jealous ears. We saw that because Jews were jealous of all the attention that Paul was getting for this new presentation of a God. Jews were like, heck no, dude, I'm not, not letting you tr- trample on my parade here. But the timely method that Paul introduces is the power of logic. I liken it to a hammer. A hammer has one job. a hammer, you take a hammer, And you take a nail and you throw down the hammer, you miss the nail and you hit your thumb. I'm just kidding. You take a hammer, you throw it down the nail and the nail attaches itself to the wood and then two pieces of wood are brought together. What Paul did in Thessalonica was genius. He simply showed the Jews their own scriptures. He said, dude, this Messiah Jesus, he's the one your scriptures bear." It's the power of reason. It's the power of God's word connected together. You see, what a hammer does is it builds a structure, brings two pieces of wood together. That same philosophy of reason and logic will work when we allow God's word to do its job, okay? How about in Berea? In Berea, the gospel fell on eager ears. The Jews were like, yeah, tell me more. This is good, I wanna examine this. And what we see in Berea is Paul's passionate preaching that ticked the Jews off in Thessalonica so much. The timely method here is the power of preaching. I liken it to a hatchet, right? What a hatchet does is a hatchet falls on a piece of wood and it splits the wood wide open, exposing the interior of the wood, okay? What preaching does is it splits open the interior of a heart, now, again, my fear is that some of you in here are like, oh, I'm out. I can't preach. I don't preach. You don't, you don't have to have a stage, a mic, or anything to preach, man. Preaching is heralding God's word passionately to somebody else. I'm telling you right now, like, I have heard some of the best sermons I've ever heard around a table of four guys. Does that make sense? You absolutely can preach, and you should. You should preach at your dinner tables to your children. You should preach to each other as spouses because the passion that you possess in your heart can be communicated out loud. Absolutely. And finally, in Athens. In Athens, the gospel fell on curious but cautious ears. Curious but cautious ears. You see, this is where Paul dialogued with the council. I liken this timely method to be the power of discussion. To me, this is much like a sander. When you pick up a sander, I don't know the exact name of this, by the way, but I've used it to sand things before. Okay. File, whatever. When you pick up a sander file, it has one job to make hard wood smooth, to make splinters go away, to take the rough edges to smooth edges. It takes time. It takes time. It absolutely takes time. Not everybody is going to come to faith in Christ like Paul did on the road to Damascus. As a matter of fact, I know more people that have come to faith in Christ over time. The power of discussion, the power of loving discussion. At the end of the discourse in Athens, that Jewish person came up to Paul and said, I'd like to hear you present on this again. I'm interested, I'm cautious, but I'm curious. We have three incredible prescriptions for reaching a lost world. And I think sometimes, if we don't immediately convert someone, we're disappointed, as if the conversion was up to us. Man, we have got to remember our context. We've got to remember our place in the mission. We are nothing more than tools. We are tools in God's toolbox to accomplish God's mission in a world that needs to hear him. And until we start believing that the Bible actually has the power to accomplish such a thing, we're gonna make less impact than we wish. So here's three tools. We've got the hammer of reason, the hammer of logic. I know there's people in your life right now that are thinkers. There's probably someone at your school that you teach at, there's, there's someone that's probably um, in your neighborhood or maybe part of a community group that, you know what, they basically want proof. They want proof. I mean, this is where apologetics and worldview training comes in so handy because people want to critically think about the faith. They want reasons to believe that our faith is credible. Allow God's word to do its job. And use the hammer of reason. Or how about in your life right now, someone who needs to be preached at, right? The acts of preaching, the hatchet of preaching, someone's heart needs to be split wide open. They've never heard anybody be passionate about Jesus before. All they've ever heard is church is boring and stale and I, you guys just follow rules. And you, we actually know your faith more for you know, what you're against than what you're for. You can absolutely preach every single one of you in here because all of you have a passion in your heart for christ and that passion can be communicated okay pick up the axe the hatchet of preaching and finally i know that i've like i said i've known more people that have come to faith over time than anything else and so this file this sander of discussion Allowing someone in your world to have conversation after conversation after conversation after conversation. And seeing that person's mind like an onion, the layers are falling off and all of a sudden the lies they believed are, are no longer lies that they're believing and all these truths are being made known to them and all of a sudden God's used you. God's used you as a sander of discussion, someone who's, who's willing to have these conversations with a lost world. Now, you gotta be careful. You gotta be careful because sometimes you'll pick up the wrong tool at the wrong time for the wrong person. So you gotta know your audience. Paul knew his audience. And I think that if you are ready to unleash God in your life in 2018, we've gotta start believing that God is able to use you and me as tools in his kingdom.